Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Boom. This is our 40th episode. Woohoo! I believe it. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And today we had an amazing conversation with Dr. Karma Fouché, who is an associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And it was just such a great conversation talking about her research on the relationships between biomechanics and clinical outcomes. It's really amazing how she's able to integrate both of those and really do human-centric research, all with the goal of improving physical activity levels and functioning in different populations. And she also talks about her involvement in mentoring diversity and inclusion initiatives, and even her homemade anatomy lab. So there's really something for everybody in this episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed that talk with Karma, and I think you will too. But before that, you know what we haven't talked about in way too long? (laughs) What, Melissa? (laughs) Animal biomechanics. Let's do it. Let's go to our bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Lily. Okay, so the bit of boom I have for you today, Hannah, is uh, is from an article called Ground Reaction Forces of Dressage Horses Performing the Pee-Off by Hillary Clayton and Sarah Hobbs, which was published in the journal Animals in 2021. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. What was that last word of the title? Pee-Off. If you were not aware, I can give you a brief background. So First, I didn't really know what dressage was. So dressage is an equestrian sport and described Mm. as the highest expression of horse training, where horse and rider are expected to perform from memory a series of predetermined movements. Mm. And so one of those movements is like a what? Kind of like a dog show, like when, you know, a dog's like jumping over all the different Yes. Yeah, like a dog show, but if you were riding the dog. Okay, Um, we're on the same page now. (laughs) (laughs) So we're on the same page. And the pee-off is actually one of the most difficult movements performed by dressage horses. And it's where the horse raises and lowers alternating diagonal limbs. So like Hmm. its left arm and its right leg while remaining in place. So it's not like a natural movement for the horse. um, So it makes the pee-off require a good balance. And when I watched the videos, it kind of reminded me of the horse version of doing high knee running in place, which that can also be like a little challenging for your balance if you really get your knees up there, you know? Whoa. So is that or like that yoga move where you're kind of like on all fours, leaning forward, and then you lift like your opposite arm and opposite leg? Down bird dog. Bird dog. Yeah, kind of like that, but in a in a running in a faster <laughs> speed. Okay. <laughs> so one of my favorite parts of this paper is a sentence that says that the subjects of the study were seven highly trained dressage horses, mm. and they used the force plates to measure the horse's ground reaction forces, and also put motion capture markers on the hooves to make sure they were fully on the plate, which I really like to think about putting markers on their hooves. 
And yeah. they found <laughs> You really like thinking that. about putting markers on Morris's <laughs> hooves. <laughs> It is pretty funny. Yeah, like you think it's hard to put markers on like a kid, but like it's probably really hard to put markers on a horse. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. At least there's no um, skin motion artifact. So they found that the hind limbs carry more weight in the pee off than a trot. And the Mm. vertical ground reaction forces in the front legs were significantly higher than the back. And they saw a lot of variability in the horizontal ground reaction forces, which they think may be what helps the horse maintain balance. So Hmm. those were the results of the study. And I think it can also be helpful just to characterize the mechanisms underlying a movement to recognize when a limb may be susceptible to injury. Um, And it's always nice to see some creative studies, you know, adapting the Hmm. um, tools that we use in a classical biomechanics lab to a setting outside of the biomechanics lab for, you know, things that aren't people. And so it was, it was a cool study. Yeah, I like that you related it to also an uh, injury, you know, pre-risk, you know, factor or something like that. That's I never would have thought about that in relationship to animals, but I think it's important to have, yeah, some of these diagnostic tests too for them. So that's that's really cool. Yeah, yeah you got to take care of your horses <laughs> so they can just pee off around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to a bit of boom. And now we're going to go into our interview with Dr. Fouché. We are thrilled to be talking with Dr. Karma Fouché, who is an associate professor in kinesiology and nutrition at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she runs the biomechanics and clinical outcomes lab. And you are also the most recent recipient of the Orthopedic Research Society Adele L. Bosky PhD Award. So congratulations on that. And thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Karma. <laughs> I've yeah, been super looking forward to this. I know Melissa has been. And so, yeah, we really appreciate you being here. And I love that the first question, one of the first questions you asked before we even started recording was, when did I how did I get into biomechanics? And so now we're going to ask you that question. We're like, you're an amazing boom host already. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) we'd love to hear your story about when you first knew you wanted to be a biomechanist and what that path has looked like for you. So I pretty much always was fascinated by the idea of like the body working as a machine. (laughs) That was as long as I can remember. So I, before I had a name for it, I was interested in biomechanics How I got interested in locomotion biomechanics was a little bit of a story. So I was initially interested in cardiovascular biomechanics, which I came through through a combination of being really interested in the heart. Mm -hmm. And I would like, for example, at Thanksgiving, my mom would give me the heart from the turkey to like (laughs) poke around with and I would cut it in half and look at the look at the valves and things. Wow, Um, you're really home at home anatomy class. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was so fun. I looked that was like one of my favorite parts of Thanksgiving preparation. (laughs) Um really into the heart. There was a class that was offered in undergrad called uh, Fluid Flow in the Human Body, which covered blood, respiration, urine, and maybe one other thing. And I was really looking forward to it. That was going to be like the culmination of my interest in like vascular, the vascular system and like, yeah, 
but it wasn't offered until senior year. So junior year, I took a class called Muscles, Reflexes, and Locomotion, which was taught by Tom McMahon, who wrote like the book on the topic (laughs) that you see sometimes still. And that really changed my life. And I got onto this path of locomotion biomechanics and never got off of it. So that's that's how I got interested in biomechanics. Yeah. Yeah. I love this combination of just your just innate curiosity for the body, but then also having an amazing teacher who was really, you know, inspiring and played a big role in kind of the shift to locomotion biomechanics. So that's very, very cool to learn about. Thank you. And so you describe the goals of your lab uh, being twofold and understanding the uh, mechanistic role of gait dysfunction and hip osteoarthritis, and then improving outcomes in multiple domains like gait and physical activity, clinical outcomes, and quality of life. And one of my favorite parts about your research is how you consider this wide range of outcomes that all make up who a person is. And so I was wondering if Mm -hmm. you could share an overview of the current projects you're working on. Uh, kind of in support of these main goals of your lab? Yeah, so a lot of it has been uh, directed at physical activity lately, mostly because Mm. that's where the funding has been. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, so we're interested in a wide range of outcomes, like you said. So everything from, I've been interested in everything from like the fate of the contralateral joint and people with unilateral hip or knee osteoarthritis. We've gotten into falls. Physical activity has been uh, a main interest since I've been at UIC. And of course, just clinical outcomes like pain and function and quality of life, like you were saying. Right Mm -hmm. now, most of us are working on physical activity from one direction or another. We have a study that recently wrapped up on women with hip osteoarthritis, looking at gait and energetics and strength. We are doing a similar study with knee osteoarthritis, both kind of pilot scale studies. And then we're ultimately looking toward working toward interventions to improve just novel ways to improve physical activity, promoting interventions that can be complementary to uh, behavioral approaches that are really common in osteoarthritis. So, yeah, like some of our students are working on um, biomechanical like correlates and consequences of step length asymmetry, which is something that you see in in hip osteoarthritis, but is uh, not studied as well as it is in some other populations like like stroke, for example, Mm -hmm. where I have another student looking at kinesiophobia and how that relates to biomechanics and physical activity. Yeah, fear Mm -hmm. of movement, which is a major obstacle to being active in osteoarthritis. So it's been really cool to see how it intersects with uh, biomechanics. And then I have another student. These are like the senior grad students right now doing a really cool mixed method study looking at uh, falls in osteoarthritis, Mm. both using qualitative methods like focus groups and then some more quantitative measures as well. So those are kind of the main things that we're doing now. Like the main thrusts are kind of like more pure biomechanics, factors related to physical activity and factors related to falls. Yeah. Um, But always still interested in traditional clinical outcomes. Yeah, Sorry, go ahead. yeah, definitely. Oh, no, I was going to say there's just so much in there that I want to ask more about. But I, I just because I, I just love this idea of being able to integrate both behavior change 
and moving in the right way. So this combination of how do we get people to move, but how do how do they move right, and how do we use both of those to support the the clinical outcomes like you're talking about? But when you said that. Uh, physical activity is where the funding is at. I'm, I'm actually kind of curious about that in terms of is it just seems like a more common uh, or just more motivating or I don't really know what I'm the right way to describe it is, but like popular topic right now or why do you think that is? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just the way that I've been writing grants, it's uh been more I, maybe I've subconsciously been more enthusiastic about physical activity at the time these grants were funded okay. <laughs> um, I really can't explain it I've um yeah I've written like hundreds of grants over the past few years and the the couple that are keeping the lab going right now happen to be in physical activity but um yeah, yeah so <laughs> there's an element of chance to it as well like there's a lot of luck and a lot of element of chance so I think that's what I would mostly attribute that's a good point yeah yeah it reminds me of a a mentor I had in undergrad who'd say that he would just apply for all these different grants and a lot of different topics and then he would just see whichever one he got funded and then you know that would be the direction that uh, the lab would move in. Uh, something that also caught my attention was the qualitative and quantitative methods like working those working together and I was wondering if you could just elaborate on what that sort of looks like through um, the research process. I think generally in biomechanics, we think more about the quantitative side. So um, it would be great to learn more about how, yeah, that other side. Yeah. So from the quantitative side, when you're doing fall, fall work, one of the things that, that our lab, like with collaborators that we look at is uh, biomechanics of falls, right? Mm -hmm. So what Mm -hmm. is the, uh, what is the trunk motion at the time of the recovery step, just training the compensatory step, response after a trip so but with osteoarthritis people with osteoarthritis fall more than uh healthy older adults and the reasons for that are partially mechanical so we could look at biomechanics of of knee loading for example they attribute it to in one large cohort study knee buckling was a factor So you could look at that from the biomechanical perspective. But what we're interested in doing right now is looking at the patient experience. So we've been running focus groups to understand what do people with osteoarthritis attribute their falls to? Are there osteoarthritis-specific reasons that people fall? Or is osteoarthritis just one more risk factor that someone might have. So we're interested in like digging into that human side of falls and osteoarthritis. And ultimately we'll be linking that with quantitative research to look at the association between these human factors and biomechanics. So in the long term, it's it's really gonna, this is really our first mixed method study. And so I'm really excited about it for that reason. It's been really fun to learn about qualitative methods and have just like another tool in like the arsenal. Mm -hmm. But I love it too, because like, like we've been saying, like, I really like to keep things focused on the patient experience, like through the biomechanics work that we do. I'm curious, like with that, that, I mean, I think that's amazing to be patient centric. And I think often in research, sometimes 
it's easy, or for me, sometimes it's easy to forget when you get to the data analysis stage where this data is coming from. Yes. Um, and so I think it's great, yeah, like integrating these really qualitative methods and like keeping that human element as part of the whole research process is just really inspiring to me. Um, so I, I think that's great that you do that. And I'm just wondering what are other ways that you keep your research patient centric and like, what is the feedback loop? Like you're talking about really great ways to keep them involved in sort of the beginning of the pipeline and the analysis and all that, but then is there sort of a feedback back to them and how does it, how does the work translate back to these populations that you're working with? Yeah. So I guess like we're not quite to the point in these studies where we're taking it back to the community. That's like mm -hmm. the long-term goal is to really mm -hmm. like, really like get the patient involved um, and mm. both in terms of creating interventions and also I'd love to have our questions like form like a patient advisory board or something like that to like oh, wow. really kind of like what's the term for it uh, community-based participatory research only in a like a biomechanics context so mm, having like, like citizen science the, or something. yeah like having them actually inform the questions that we're looking at right now the way it's like manifested is through just the questions that we ask so for example even the most like biomechanics -y biomechanics person in the lab has to have like a clinical outcomes question so you wow. just the questions that you ask have to link back to mm -hmm. a, some kind of person relevant outcome in some way. So, for example, the student that is looking at step length asymmetry and looking he's looking at split belt treadmill training and uh, kinematics and kinetics and all of that. But the underlying motivation for that, it, like his first study was linking step length asymmetry to function mm -hmm. and to like physical activity outcomes. So that's where it's headed, even though he is focusing on kind of a narrow biomechanics question. It's kind of the underpinning of everything that we do in the lab. Yeah, it reminds me, I remember when, when we were talking previously and you, you dropped a line that I cannot, like that I, I just like always think back on when you said, gate don't lie. And for some Did I say that? <laughs> Yeah, and for some reason it's just stuck with me because I just think this what you're saying in, in using <laughs> biomechanics as you know can it predict these more like functioning and, and clinical outcomes is just something that I, I haven't heard much of before but it feels like it makes sense like self-reported measures you know aren't always very reliable right they're they're pretty subjective and they're not always related to clinical outcomes. I mean, people are very complicated, um, but perhaps using biomechanics as more of a quantitative way to evaluate some of these outcomes or see if they're related to them um, seems like a really unique, unique approach, but also potentially really powerful. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope I hope it turns out to be be the case. I'm really excited about continuing with that line of research as well, like using biomechanics to predict outcomes of treatments. Yeah, linking biomechanics to patient uh, patient reported outcome measures, that kind of thing, is another uh, big branch of our work that we'd like to continue pursuing. 
Actually, along those lines, um, you mentioned one of the projects you're working on and it was recently published um, where you're evaluating the combined role of walking energetics and hip abductor strength on physical activity in older women with hip OA. So really linking the biomechanics and the human centric goals. And so just curious if you could describe some of the main findings of this work and why it was important to understand sort of these relationships of energy use and muscle strength and how they relate back to the physical activity levels. Yeah. So first thing is like physical activity is super important. It's important for everybody. Just like I mentioned before that uh, people with OA fall more often, they're also less Mm -hmm. likely to be physically active. And that's Mm -hmm not good (laughs) because of the consequences Mm -hmm. of low physical activity. So like cardiovascular morbidity, like the everything. So physical activity is good. I feel like the reasons why people are not physically active have not been like as well teased out as they could be. There's a lot of behavioral factors, which I feel like most of the attention has been on like self-efficacy and obviously pain and fear, like fear of injuring your joints more and that kind of thing. And that's all totally valid. But coming from my background where I spent kind of the first half of my career so far helping to characterize abnormal biomechanics and osteoarthritis, Mm -hmm. I just had like the inkling that abnormal biomechanics has something to do with it, right? So maybe people aren't as physically active as they could be because their abnormal biomechanics makes it so they can't be physically active. So with this Mm -hmm. study, I can't remember if this is, if this was an aspect of this particular study, but, um, or if it was in like a previous study that we've done, like the project is kind of blurring together and which papers have come out of it, but we're interested in fatigue. So I, I got interested in fatigue as that's one of the psychological factors that impedes physical activity in people with osteoarthritis. So Whoa. what I was wondering was- Like not just physical walk- fatigue, but mental fatigue. Uh, I'm thinking about physical, actual physical fatigue. Hmm. Okay. So the idea is that if you walk with a less efficient gait pattern, you might be more fatigable and that fatigability might lead you to reduced physical activity, if that makes sense. So that's why we were interested in walking energetics, because we wanted to see if walking energetics were linked to physical activity. And they were. So people that used more energy for walking, we measured it a couple different ways, but whichever way we measured it, people that used more energy to, for just everyday walking were less physically active overall. And we found similar things at the knee mm. so far in our mm. ongoing work. And then abductor strength. So I'm obsessed with the hip abductors, as everyone who's <laughs> taken either one of my classes knows. Only a true biomechanist <laughs> would say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been my favorite muscle group for a long time. Um, and since my total hip replacement, since I started off in total hip replacement uh, research, gait research, and it's been my favorite muscle group since that time because it does so many things. And I love how I... I don't want to go on a tangent about the hip abductors, but they're very important. <laughs> and in osteoarthritis, they're they're typically weaker than a healthy control. So the kind of the long-term strategy with this is to understand if there's a link between 
abductor dysfunction and walking energetics and if that interaction leads to reduced physical activity. So that's what we were looking at in this paper was hip abductor strength, walking energetics, and their combined role in uh, contributing to reduced physical activity. And so, um, yeah, that's what we found. And we still have more work to do. Obviously, it's a process, but hopefully like that's kind of the line that I want to continue chasing down and seeing if we can um, work toward work toward interventions. Mm. Yeah. Because it seems like you're finding these really interesting and new relationships, but then the next step then would be to do interventions to actually determine that causation and seeing if you can improve the hip abductor strength as that then affect these outcomes that you're looking at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's the goal. I guess first thing first would be to, um, yeah, no, that's the goal. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to get too, too much in the weeds about the process. But yeah. That's impressive. You can recognize okay, yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's super, it's really interesting to me Personally, because I've been going through this um, hip surgery uh, at the, near the end of last year and doing these abductor, hip abductor exercises. And I actually, I think it's one of, I guess when we think of strengthening again, a lot of the focus is tends to be on like glute strength and core strength. And some, um, but I think hip abductor and adductor is really important. And I think sometimes not, you know, used to the full uh, potential or sometimes forgotten about. But I think, yeah, the way you're saying is you're excited about it. And it seems like talking to different physical therapists, some of them have really been very passionate about uh, those exercises. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to fall in love with the hip abductors. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great <laughs> yeah well we really loved learning more about your research and um I really enjoy following your work uh, but I wanted to ask you about a bit of a different project that you're a paper that you were part of um so you were on a on a team that wrote a paper called the importance of diversity equity and inclusion orthopedic research and this was published in the journal of orthopedic research and in it you talk about how the Orthopedic Research Society can promote a more inclusive environment. And I was wondering if you could share some of the main ideas from that, because I'm sure that they can be beneficial for, you know, other societies and environments as well. Um, but the, the points yeah. that you're making were really powerful. Yeah. So that was um, a really, I was uh, privileged to work on the diversity and inclusion task force last year, I guess, two years ago now. And the, the editorial in JOR was the culmination of that project. So main ideas are, one is just diverse teams are better, <laughs> just plain better. And that's well known at this point um, it, from like the business world. So diverse teams are more productive, more creative, more innovative. In business, they have better um, financial outcomes. So diversity is really important from like the bottom, quote unquote, bottom line perspective, but also it, there can be in terms of the, the, again, keeping it patient centered, the people that our work ultimately seeks to serve are, uh, you know, everybody. And if we don't have 
a good representation of everybody on the research side, there can be missing, we can be missing things that could be preventing us from helping um, helping our patients to the fullest uh, extent that we could be. So that was kind of the first key take-home point is just the importance of diversity. What else? Organizations need to be like intentional about diversity. So one of the key recommendations was to establish a committee for diversity, equity, and inclusion. It had been, it had long been stated as one of the values of the ORS, the Orthopedic Research Society. But until last year, we didn't have a committee focused on that value. So now we do. And I am again, like privileged to be the chair, the first chair of that committee. So that was, that was one thing, which was amazing to me. So we've been working really hard to try to elevate diversity initiatives, inclusion initiatives, think about things with an equity lens as we go forward. And then the last thing that I guess I would say is that that came out of that is the importance of benchmarking and you measure what you care about, right? So just like in research, if you the variables that you collect are the variables that you obviously think are important and interesting to look at. So one of the, the things that we started doing was asking a better set, a more inclusive set of demographic questions in our membership materials, our membership records. So that was that was basically our first recommendation to the board of directors and the first kind of small push toward inclusion. So hopefully now everybody coming into society can uh, have a set of options that represents them which wasn't necessarily the case before, both on like a demographic level, career stage level, uh, professional interest level. So thinking about mm-hmm. multiple aspects of diversity. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that was yeah. the, big, the big points from that, that work. Yeah, I liked from the first point that you were talking about where it's, you know, diverse teams are better, but not just for the team, but you're thinking about, you know, long term, then that's going to affect the patients and that's going to affect the people that we're trying to help. So it's good for the team and it's good for, you know, humanity yeah. uh, more broadly. <laughs> and this idea of benchmarking, I was wondering if you could give, you, you talked about asking more in- inclusive questions throughout the whole process, like in different parts of your career. Could you give an example of what a more inclusive question is like? Or the yeah the type of question that you kind of change to to make it more inclusive. Sure. So I can give two examples. One was on gender. So before we just had two gender options as well as prefer not to say, mm-hmm. but we recognized that we needed to have a more expansive uh, selection of gender options. So we added a non-binary, and of course we kept prefer not to say. With regards to race and ethnicity. There were, we, I can't remember what the categories were before, but they were limited and not everybody could find themselves. So, for example, just in my own lab, I have two students that didn't identify with any of the categories in, um, that mm. we chose. So, we expanded that based on, we used the NIH ethnicity list as a starting point. We added on to that so that, for example, Middle Eastern, North African becomes its own thing rather than just being subsumed within white because they 
don't necessarily identify as white. Some do, some don't, but just to have that option for representation. So I feel like just being able to see yourself represented on the boxes that you tick is an important step toward feeling like you're actually part of this organization. So those are, those are two examples. Thank you for sharing those. I know, like, I just love that something so simple can be accommodating or changing. Yeah. And it's just a little thing. It's just a little thing, but I feel like it can really be meaningful to, to someone. So that was like one of our kind of small, small wins that I think are like nudging, nudging us toward more inclusion and more equity. Orthopedic research has lagged behind some of the other fields in terms of these issues. So we're, we're, we're trying to do our part to rectify that now. Well, we're really excited to see you putting energy into these different things like diversity and inclusion, especially because that's not always necessarily rewarded in the field of academia, at least not that I've seen. And you also put some energy into investigating junior investigators thinking about quitting research. And uh, it was kind of crazy that one of your findings was that 44% of these junior tenure-track faculty members answered yes to whether they had questioned considered quitting research in the past year and that's a lot it's a lot yeah Yeah. it's a lot but it was um yeah encouraging in a way to know that uh maybe to know that you aren't alone (laughs) thinking those things Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) this is a hard business yeah for sure and I think as a graduate student who is interested in kind of always trying to see what academia looks like as a career this the study was really impactful, especially because I could relate to some of the factors that you found were associated to thinking about quitting academia, which included lower confidence in research skills, reduced job satisfaction, and higher levels of burnout. Yeah. I think, yeah, these are some familiar fears. <laughs> and But the, the fact that you're doing studies like this means that maybe we're moving in the right direction toward addressing some of these challenges. But I'm definitely curious about your own experience with this. And what changes you think we might need to, you know, overcome some of these challenges? Yeah. So part of why I was interested in this area was was selfish, as I was a junior investigator at the time that um, the original data was collected. And yeah, these it's it's major. These are major issues for for junior people. One super super always nice to hear that you can relate. But we're wondering if you have any thoughts on what changes we might need to. You know, ah, okay. So having experienced um, it yourself, <laughs> having experienced it myself, yes. So like one of the, again, one of the like privileges of being mid-career now is having the ability to kind of do something about these things, albeit on a very local level. So one of the other hats that I wear is as um, the associate director for education and professional development for our. Um, our CTSA program, our clinical center for clinical and translational science. So I like what I try to do with both with my trainees and through this work is really emphasize that research confidence aspect and that research self-efficacy aspect. I feel like that's just really critical. So I try to think about the idea of competency-based mentoring and um, 
every so often, we don't do it every year, but every now and then I, I give a self-assessment to my grad students to see where, where they're feeling confident about their abilities, where they're not feeling confident and to pick, kind of pick an area to work on. I feel like mentoring is obviously really important, but one of the, I have mixed feelings about a lot of traditional concepts of mentoring for trainees and junior faculty, because I feel like it just focuses on like deficits on like what you don't know, what you can't do. So that's part of why I was attracted to that self-efficacy concept. So that was kind of my piece of that study is looking at self-efficacy and thinking about how just building confidence and building those research skills can go a long way. Uh, So that's how that, yeah, like I said, that was my little piece of that study. And that's kind of what I try to implement in my mentoring activities right now. So self-efficacy, sense of community is really important. Mm -hmm. Finding peers, peer mentoring is Mm -hmm. critical Mm -hmm. in my opinion, which it sounds like you two have with each other, which is, which is awesome. (laughs) Um, Obviously make a good team here. So, yeah. That's, yeah, that's so powerful and, and I think will help a lot of people. And it's nice to see some steps moving towards, you know, more supportive atmosphere for careers mm-hmm. in, in academia. And it's interesting too, when you talk about self-efficacy and I've been thinking about it more in terms of physical activity and you know relating that actually, uh-huh. you know, there's other domains <laughs> that this applies to. And when Thinking about how to improve self-efficacy and in, in, so in thinking about in physical activity where there's ways where you can have a physical therapist sort of guide you through um, activities and mm. you can become more confident in that or they can help you think about ways that you can, you know, what challenges might arise and how you can overcome those. And so when I'm thinking about that in terms of your career and what what are some ways that you can improve self-efficacy or confidence in in this domain? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, what just popped into my mind with the way that you linked it to physical activity is one of the, one of the ways to improve self-efficacy with respect to physical activity is through, um, and in other domains as well, mastery experiences, so understanding and seeing yourself perform an activity, say with a physical therapist, can give you the confidence or like the awareness that you're able to, to do it on your own. So I think in terms of research self-efficacy, it's kind of the same thing. I hadn't actually thought about this in this way before, but so for example, if you identify finding funding opportunities as an area that you're not confident at, that you need room for development, then that's what we work on. We work on those skills. So if you feel like nervous about writing a grant, like let's get you writing a grant. Let's, let's do it. Let's find uh, a small pot of money that you can apply for and like learn about the process. So kind of guiding people through those actual steps the, the actual aspects of research confidence that um, that they might not feel so comfortable with. That's kind of the approach that I take. So through through those mastery experiences, they can gain confidence, gain self-efficacy. That's such a powerful process and just resource that you are 
providing because I think yeah thinking about being able to highlight people's strengths but also helping them like directly you know kind of lift up areas that they might want to be working on and like being there to help with them along the way you know like yeah otherwise right. I think we kind of avoid them like it's like oh I don't want to do that <laughs> yeah and I, I love that you said focusing on people's strengths because that's another thing that I really try to emphasize in my mentoring is like what's going right like there's <laughs> there's always something you can always focus on what's mm-hmm. going wrong but um what's going well what are you proud of and how can how did you get there how did you get to that accomplishment that you're proud of and how can we use how can we adapt those steps to this area that you're not so confident in one thing we do like to talk about here on boom that i think does build some research confidence or confidence in general even yeah. though it might be counterintuitive is failing right and um or you know we can put quotes around failing cuz that's, you know, up to whoever's defining it. But we're just wondering if you if you have any, you know, fails to share throughout your career or, and, and maybe more importantly, what you learned from those experiences. Yeah, I don't know. That's so hard because so much of this job is about rejection. <laughs> so it's like, uh, like, where to begin? <laughs> I have, uh, hundreds of fails to choose from, but I don't, so I don't know. I think like, rejection is the main thing I can't pick just one but um for there's there's just so much rejection it, it can honestly be kind of a beat down sometimes so, like having a project that you're really passionate about you spend however many months writing a grant about it and then the grant gets not discussed that's mm-hmm. that's kind of like the most common like large fail mm-hmm. that that I've experienced uh, of course having papers rejected as well I don't know what what do I take from that is just again like trying to apply these the methods that I use um, for supporting other people to myself trying to be kind to myself trying to think about being resilient and persistent and keep trying and if there's like, again, think about, think about what's going well and think about how you can exploit that to turn that failure into a success, no matter how long it takes. My husband once said that you have to be like a shark and sharks, I don't know if this is true or not. He's not a shark biologist, (laughs) Um, but he said that sharks keep swimming and even when they're asleep, they're, yeah, fact this even when they're asleep they're swimming and so like it doesn't matter what happens you just always have to keep swimming so I think about that a lot like I don't even want to know if it's not true because it's um it's a good metaphor for for that I like to uh to think about so fact check it but don't tell me the answer yeah so from failure (laughs) just keep it moving Failure mm-hmm. is just part of this job and you just have to, you be sad about it, but yeah, just keep it going. Try, try again. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I don't think we've ever had someone like share a blank, like that, such a blanket fail. So like <laughs> that was, that was um, I, know, awesome. I can't choose just and, one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> that we do get a lot of that too. But I just want to really acknowledge and thank you for sharing that because you seem so resilient and like are doing all these positive things and are just doing such amazing, impactful work. 
but the fact that you even acknowledge like sometimes it is a rejection is a beat down you know I think that is just super important to hear like it's not like we're all perfect it's just yeah it's just really comforting so thank you for sharing that (laughs) I also liked how you said you talked about what you think about what you would do for another person in that situation and then try to apply that to yourself. And it reminds me of a strategy that I did that I learned before about and what would you say to a friend in this time? And, you know, generally, usually it's, you know, it's going to be okay. Like this happened for a reason. This is going to make your grant better or your paper stronger. And, you know, those things that we don't usually aren't usually the first thing that comes to my mind when a failure or rejection happens, but putting in that frame can be really helpful. Um, yeah. The other thing that, yeah, that that made me laugh was yesterday. I was driving, and there was a road that was closed off, and a car was in front of me was slowing down because they had wanted to turn into it. And someone was just standing outside with a megaphone, and any time a car slowed down, she would just yell, "Keep it moving!" <laughs> and <laughs> I, I was always, and when you said that, that just came to mind, and I was like, sometimes I feel like I just need someone, you know, with a megaphone while I'm working or something goes wrong that's just like keep it moving like you got things to do (laughs) Uh, so yeah Yeah. thank you for sharing that and for yeah just sharing your perspective and I think we hear you know different ways that people have learned from failure but it's, it's nice to always get a different way to frame it I think because some things connect differently with different people so and we really appreciate that before our last question, can you share how people can learn more about you and your work? So we know you're on Twitter where you describe yourself as the world's okayest roller derby, roller derby player, which I would Woo! like to learn more, more about at some point. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah that's sure been a, handle another way to way. like, sorry, like I was oh, just no, saying like roller derby has been another way of, uh, uh, helping me deal with failure. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at karma mdphd. I can't remember if there's an underscore in there. Sorry. <laughs> we'll include it. We'll include it in the description. But <laughs> okay. And then, so my Twitter is like, I would say like 97% work related. And then occasionally I'll post something personal. I also used to be pretty active on Instagram. I'm like kind of on and off with it, but my Instagram is Dr. Dr. Fouché. And um, I, I post there. I post more personal stuff. I post about roller derby. I post about my teaching, but like I said, I'm, I'm off and on with it. But if you want to um, kind of get, get a sense of like life overall <laughs> that's a good if you want to um do some like internet stalking of me that's the place to start <laughs> perfect well you heard it here first uh <laughs> i think it's great to that balance of you know uh, getting to learn about your research but then also remembering that scientists are people and being able to see what you do in your in your personal life too is is a, a good good for grounding I think and so the last question that we like to ask is what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics so 
to kind of bring it back to something we were talking about before, like one of the things that I'm really excited about for the future is this new, the the current emphasis on diversity, equity, and, and inclusion in the field. I'm super excited to be part of the Black Biomechanist Association. I think it's awesome that that group was started up recently. Excited about international women in biomechanics excited about Latinx and biomechanics. I think all these opportunities for support and for representation are going to be really important to the future of the field and kind of keeping it going, keeping it alive, like love the corporate support that we've gotten, love like the partnerships, like with National Biomechanics Day. I just think like we were talking about earlier, like diversity is like absolutely critical for scientific progress. So I think that these elements are just making the future of the field that much brighter. I love that answer. Just also thinking back to like the simple things you did in changing the, you know, check boxes you see available in a survey. I think that's, there's a similar analog in seeing, you know, who's represented in the, you know, in the professions that you care about or are interested in. So Yeah, I'm excited for that too. Representation matters. And um, I didn't really have that. So I'm really proud to be able to kind of be that for other people. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And also for everything that you've you've shared with us and taught us over the episode. It's been really nice to have you on. I'm so excited for other people to learn more about you and your work and all these other amazing projects that you've been working on. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always like, I loved this and it's, um, it's great to kind of uh, reflect for me on different aspects of my, my career and realize that it's okay, even if things are beat down. Um, so I just really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to share my thoughts with you. Thank you for the invitation. Ooh, well, that was an amazing interview. I just feel like I wish that I got to work with Karma more because it sounds like she's an amazing mentor and just hugely supportive of her students and people that she works mm-hmm. with and collaborates with. And also just really comforting around her framing of research fails, which is what we're going to talk about now. The research fail that I want to share today, it's a little bit of a potty talk. So if you don't like that, you should just (laughs) skip ahead like two minutes into the episode. Okay, but what happens if we love that? (laughs) If you love that, buckle up because you're about to go on the roller coaster (laughs) of of poop talk. Okay. So (laughs) one of my friends, I was catching up with her on a Zoom as we do these days, and she's just had a rough day in the lab because (laughs) she was actually trying to be like a really innovative engineer and she didn't want to do you know something that was sort of conventional do a method that was conventional in the field she wanted to like kind of innovate her own way to do it and make it faster and more efficient and the method that she was trying to innovate involved basically spinning down samples of human feces which she was trying to, you know, so she combines them with some certain different chemicals and solutions. She puts them in a little tiny tube and basically spins them to like, you know, mix it all up. And then she can like run different tests on that sample. And she, yeah, normally I think, 
you can only do them sort of one at a time or something like that. And she wanted to be able to do a bunch at once, <laughs> kind of like, yeah. you know, scale up the scale up the process. So she's got all her samples from, you know, you know, various sources and she's, you know, doing setting up her kind of basically box of these to be to be spun and mixed up. And she just she miscalculated something about her procedure. And <laughs> you can imagine. Uh-huh. You can imagine <laughs> what happens when you spin something that's full of some liquid and maybe some other solids that you might not want to go oh, everywhere. Okay. <laughs> I think I And can. it ended I up everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so that long story short, she had a lot of cleaning up to do and not only she, it wasn't like she was just alone in the lab doing this, there were other people, you know, around in the more than 6 foot vicinity. And um, yeah. I think that they had to light a candle or something in that room. <laughs> I think, yeah, at least one. At least one. Um, serious disinfecting. So after talking to her, I just really get very grateful and thankful that I do a lot of computational work. <laughs> yeah, I think after that story, I I am too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But she's amazing, and she figured out a better way to do it. And that's what she learned from that <laughs> fail. Good. Yeah, it's good to, to learn from your fails, especially if those involve poop flying around and, you know, you really don't want something like that to happen again. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that research fail. I appreciate that your friend was willing to have us share that. And if anyone else wants to share their research fails, uh, you can always email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Or if you want to host an episode or get involved in the podcast in some way, uh, feel free to send us an email. And we really appreciate you for listening, taking the time out of your day to be with us here on Boom. We'd also like to thank the International Society of Biomechanics for their amazing support. And you can follow Boom on Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook now at Biomechanics on Our Minds. Uh, thanks also to Peter Washington for amazing music to Boom. We, you know, still find so much joy in it. Well, I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. Biomechanics, Biomechanics off, off Our Minds. Our minds. <laughs>